So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. That final line is curious. The last time I checked, brood of vipers and axe laying at the root of the tree do not qualify as endearing idioms. And yet a crowd had gathered around the camel hair wearing prophet, distant cousin of Jesus. Like prophets before him and since, John was not polite company. You would not want to invite John or any prophet, for that matter, to a cocktail party. If anything, John's personality was repulsive, the stuff of fringe indie movies, not Walt Disney lore. I can only speak for myself when I say I know people like John the Baptist. I won't say who, (laughs) but I do know people like John the Baptist, people with jagged edges who are not the most respectable, but by sheer means of charisma and intrigue, I am drawn to again and again people who see something in the world I cannot see, people who see the very ones I elevate as celebrities, as a brood of vipers, who trust that the world as we know it will end if we do not change course, if we do not repent. While the word repentance might evoke images of charismatic televangelists saying, for a limited time only give your hand to the preacher and your heart to the Lord for 1999, repentance for John's immediate audience meant a reorientation or a change of course. It is this reorientation, this repentance of which the narrator of Zephaniah speaks when she says, I will change the shame of the outcasts into praise. This vision is precisely the one John the Baptist was seeking to embody in the Judean wilderness, outside the boundaries of an oppressive empire. The people to whom John announced God's incoming era of of justice through Jesus were, by virtue of leaving their places of comfort, already physically reorienting themselves, already repenting, as they were immersed in the waters of baptism, as they were plunged into radically different lives. But just how is this good news or gospel actually good news? Because, and I ask that because radical reorientation sounds much more like a stringent diet than a joyful way of life. Quote, the author of this gospel does not reserve the term gospel for the words of Jesus. From the shaking of kinship and cultic foundations to the call to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance manifested in care and concern for others, especially within the economic realities of any society, 
John's words already bring the gospel message, says Dr. Willie James Jennings. John's wilderness message is hand in glove with the good news we will later hear Jesus announce. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. This is good news, if paradoxical, but good news no less. Good news to those without coats. Good news to those without food. Good news to those exploited by the ruling class. And this is glaringly complex news for those giving away their coats and food, those ceasing to extort money from the most vulnerable. To quote Jennings again, from both the soldier and the tax collector, John demands economic justice. Both soldier and tax collector are answerable to God before they are answerable to the emperor, end quote. Jesus and John were both born in an obscure corner of the far-flung Roman Empire, a relatively insignificant tract of land whose inhabitants were not allowed to rule themselves and yet at the same time also were not imperial citizens. Statues of the Roman emperor were placed across the empire's disenfranchised territories to reinforce the imperial mythos and stringent social order. And there's one scholar that says the closer you got to the city of Rome, the fewer statues of the emperor you saw. These statues were most common in the places furthest away from Rome. On any given day, Jesus and John would have walked by the towering figures playing hide-and-go-seek in their shadows. Inscribed on the stone base of one of those statues was written the following. Providence has given us Augustus, sending him as a savior. Does this sound familiar? that he might end war, that he might bring peace. Caesar, whose appearance and birthday was the beginning of the gospel, the good news for the world, end quote. It was in the crucible of the emperor's gospel, the emperor's good news, which was actually bad news for the impoverished and marginalized, that the good news John announced formed. It was and is a gospel that exists in stark contrast to Caesar's, a good news to people who need to hear it, for a social order in desperate need of radical reorientation, of repentance, As more and more people are baptized at our font and are fed at God's holy table, the good news of Jesus, the one we love and proclaim, takes flesh. 
as more people, more and more people are clothed and fed and treated with dignity, the good news takes flesh. As relationships are mended, the good news takes flesh. As those who are sick die in peace and with dignity, the good news takes flesh. As the wilderness and all of those places at the edges fill and the centers of power empty, the good news takes flesh. And all the while, thinking back to that Zephaniah reading, God dances over us, rejoices over us, gathers us, and brings us home. Amen.